I don't know if you've ever uh, tried to um, fly a kite when there's no wind, <laughs> you know, no breeze. Have you ever gone out and tried to get a kite to fly? Uh, when our family traveled to China back in, uh, I think it was 2007, our tour group, one of the interesting things our tour group did was uh, our tour group gave each family a kite to try to fly um, on the Tiananmen Square there in, in uh, Beijing. Um, trouble was, on the day that we were there, there was no wind. <laughs> I mean, it, it was still, there was no breeze at all. Um, um, and as hard as the kids, okay, I'll confess, as hard as I tried to get that kite to fly, um, you know, <laughs> it, it, it was no good. Um, the kite would go up for just a moment as I would try sprinting across that square, you know, uh, but then it would quickly come crashing down to the ground because there's nothing to lift it up. Isn't that the trouble with religion? You try as hard as you can to follow all of the directives that uh, Christ gives, <laughs> but you don't have power. You, you get good advice many times with different religions or religions, uh, but you don't have the ability to carry it out. And I got to tell you that good advice without power is just bad news, just plain bad news. And that's the dilemma, I think, of Scripture. You read some of God's commands, uh, like, be perfect as I am perfect, or um, love your enemies, or even what you would think might be easier ones, like, um, think upon those things that are pure and true and right. <laughs> Yet even as I am reading such high and lofty instructions, my mind wanders to things that are not all that pure, not all that right. <laughs> Scripture tells you what you should do, what you should not do. But it doesn't give you the power to do those things or not do those things. I mean, just... Think about the disciples. Don't you think that was part of their dilemma? Don't you think this was a frustration they had to experience? I mean, after all, Jesus had given them the Sermon on the Mount. My small group is currently going through a study on the Sermon on the Mount, and I got to tell you, as you read that sermon out of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives a lot of instructions there that are very difficult, if not impossible, for us to follow. For example, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. I mean, who can do that? Who qualifies? <laughs> and that's not all the disciples heard. They saw Jesus cure people who were sick. They, they uh, saw Jesus bring the dead back to life. They uh, saw Jesus restore sight to the blind. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, go and do even greater things than these. <laughs> I mean, he, he might as well have been telling them to go fly to the moon. 
impossible. If the only thing that religion has to offer us is good advice without any power, then all it would be would be bad news, don't you think? Last week, we looked at another one of Jesus' instructions that he gave to his disciples from Acts chapter 1. Jesus told them to go and be witnesses, uh, his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember that instruction? And although these were specific instructions, I got to tell you, they lacked at that moment the power to uh, carry it out. But then came the good news. <laughs> Jesus, knowing that his disciples that they needed more than just good advice and uh, some uh, instructions and commands. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promised Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he tells them. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will have uh, the power, uh, give you the power to carry out my commands. Good advice plus power um, is good news, isn't it? The cross is good news about God's love. But listen, if the Holy Spirit had not come, think about this, if the Holy Spirit had not come and provided the power for the witnesses to go out into all the world and speak the good news, both the cross and the resurrection would have been long forgotten events of ancient history. If it hadn't been for these events recorded in Acts chapter 2, you and I, I got to tell you, we wouldn't be here today. I want to invite you to turn with me then to Acts chapter 2, would you? Acts chapter 2. Again, this is the second volume of uh, Luke, uh, the doctor, Dr. Luke, and he uh, gives us a second volume here. Um, in the book of Acts. Start with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, all uh, together. That's the, the disciples, 120 of them were all together in one place on the day of the Pentecost. Now, um, 10 days after Jesus has ascended into heaven, we talked about his ascension last week, 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover week comes Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish festival celebrating the beginning of harvest season. I mean, it was a religious holiday and crowds came from all over the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And it was on this day that the Holy Spirit arrives. Look how uh, Luke describes the Holy Spirit's arrival here in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I find this account of the Holy Spirit's arrival uh, fascinating, don't you? I mean, very descriptive. Luke uh, describes three supernatural phenomena that take place, that engage the uh, three different senses, in fact. One, 
the phenomenon involved a sound, a second involved a sight, and a third involved speech. Let's take a time and look at each one of them. The first was the sound of wind. Um, now notice here, Luke does not tell us that the wind blew upon them. Rather, they heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind. I mean, the sound um, they heard evidently resembled kind of like a, a tornado. I mean, the violent wind was symbolic, and it represented God's empowering breath. See, in the ancient world, uh, the wind was thought to be like breath, just on a larger scale. <laughs> um, both uh, wind and breath are in, in, invisible, right? Both are, are powerful. So they would use the same word for wind and breath and spirit. For example, you remember back in Genesis um, when God had first formed Adam and Adam was lifeless, but then God breathed into Adam, right? And Adam came alive. It was God's empowering breath. Then in Jesus' ministry, he had told his disciples that the Holy Spirit was like the wind that blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound, but you can't tell it where it's, you can't tell where it's coming from or, or you can't tell where, where it's going. Um, you can't see the wind. You can only see the effects of the wind. And so... Um, uh, now, the ascended Christ blows his breath, his, his, his wind, his spirit upon them. And it was not a little breath. No, it was a gale force wind. God blew life into these disciples. And they were transformed. And they were filled with his power. The second phenomenon was fire. The fire, too, was, was symbolic. Um, they saw something like a fire. You see that? Something like a fire. And this fire reminded them of the purifying presence of God. It, see, they, as they saw this fire, um, they would have remembered Moses in the wilderness, right? Startled by that bush that seemed to burn, uh, yet never was consumed, <laughs> Um, and as Moses approached that uh, bush, he heard the voice of God saying from that bush, Moses, this is holy ground. Take off your sandals. They would have known that when burnt offerings were consumed um, by fire in the temple, that the fire represented God's consuming righteousness, his consuming holiness. You see, fire, I got to tell you, is, is dangerous it's consuming, it's hot, it's powerful. Now, while most of us here, I think, uh, would acknowledge that fire is not God, how many of us would be aware that God is fire? <laughs> I mean, that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. God himself is a fire. And everything he touches, he purifies. 
Let me just pause here just for a second and make a, a simple application for, for us, right? I mean, how many of us would want God to really touch our lives? How many of us want to see fire come down from heaven and fall on us? I mean, we would rather watch his fire fall without having to be burned by him, wouldn't we? <laughs> we want to be close enough to observe the fire and feel the warmth of the fire, to be exhilarated by the danger maybe of God's fire, but not be consumed by him. But that's not the way God works. When God's spirit comes, he comes as a purifying fire. He comes with power. The third phenomenon on that day was, uh, on that day of Pentecost, was uh, the ability to speak in other languages. <laughs> I mean, suddenly 120 believers found that they were able to speak in a language that um, they had never gone to class for. Uh, they had never learned. And we've seen something like this before in Scripture, haven't we? Remember back in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel? It was there that God confused people's languages and they, they scattered to various parts of the world. But here now, on the day of Pentecost, catch this, the day of Pentecost, the exact opposite takes place. With people from every nation under heaven gathered there in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit supernaturally breaks the communication barrier so that all the people could hear and understand the good news of Jesus Christ in their own Language. While Babel was a, a judgment of God that led to confusion and, and, and people scattering, God's spirit at Pentecost was a blessing that led people to understand and to gather together. At Babel, God used the curse of, of language to slow the advance of man's city. At Pentecost, catch this, God used the gift of language to speed up the advance of Christ's kingdom. Each of these three incredible phenomena took place to verify the Holy Spirit's arrival. They made visible the invisible. The power which Jesus had promised had arrived. <laughs> and the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice how the international throng of people here reacted and responded uh, to what they see takes place. Look with me at verse 5. Acts 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it? that we hear each of us in our own native language. Skip down to verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, well, hey, they're just filled with new wine. Um, they were amazed. They were perplexed. They were astonished. And some of them feeling like they had to try to explain it in a uh, 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 natural ways, <laughs> they come up with the explanation that uh, ah, they just had, have had too much to drink. That's why they're doing this. But see, something extraordinary had happened. 
Something had changed these disciples. They had been transformed and they had been empowered. It was the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God had fallen on them and by one act had initiated for all of us, all Christ followers down through the centuries, the possibility of the indwelling power of God. Now, I believe that first Pentecost, I have to tell you this, I believe it was unique. It was unique in the same way that the birth of Jesus was unique. I mean, unique circumstances required those unique um, phenomena. But I do think that the sequence of events that took place on that day of Pentecost is applicable for, for us today. First of all, you have to understand they had the teaching of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus had been teaching um, these disciples for the past three years. He had instructed them about who he was, and, 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 and they, had, they had followed him. They had, had uh, sworn by him. They had committed themselves to him, and then comes the filling of the Holy Spirit. And now they're equipped to effectively serve Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing happens today. Same sequence has to be followed today. Um, we must know Christ first and what he did by his life and death and his resurrection. We need to receive him and give him our allegiance and then we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then we can begin to effectively serve our Lord. See, Jesus doesn't just offer forgiving grace. He also offers us his transforming grace and his empowering grace. And the New Testament makes it perfectly clear that when we receive Jesus Christ, we are baptized. That is, we are identified as Christ with the Holy Spirit. But we can't live this Christian life by our own power. We must live it under the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. Good advice. See, with power, that's good news. And Jesus knew what his disciples required, so he sent his Spirit. And he also knows what you and I require. Of course, then the natural question comes up. Um, listen, Sutton, if all this is true... <laughs> Why do we so oftentimes find this Christian life so difficult to live? Or put another way, how can we experience the power of the Holy Spirit? The late Dr. A.W. Tozer, author and pastor, said this. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we would do would go on and no one would know the difference. The Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church. 95% of what they did would stop, and everybody would know the difference. That's a scary thought. I would pray that that wouldn't be a descriptive of a first free. <laughs> so how can we know the power of the Holy Spirit individually? How can we know the power of the Holy Spirit as a, as a church family, as a church? Let me suggest two ways. First, we need to be obedient. 
Look again at the obedience of these disciples. I want you to see this. Jesus had told them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait till the gift of his father, uh, the, the gift of the father had promised would arrive. Can you imagine <laughs> what would happen? What would have happened if Peter, you know, being his impetuous self, had said, you know, guys, listen, you, you wait around here if you want to. Listen, you know, I'm not sticking around here. It's been six days. I, I don't know how long we're going to... I'm, I'm going back home. I'm returning to the Sea of Galilee into my fishing business. <laughs> or, or maybe if Matthew had said, listen, guys, I, I'm, I'm not waiting around this city. I mean, it's dangerous here in, in Jerusalem. Keep hiding out in this house. No, I'm, I'm leaving. Can you imagine that having taken place? I mean, they would have missed a spiritual arrival. They would have missed God's empowering breath and his purifying fire and his universal word, and they would have been powerless. But they all waited, didn't they? And 10 days later, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, still waiting in obedience to Jesus' command. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Listen, in the Greek, the verb walk there is in the present tense, which means that Paul is speaking of a continuous action. He's speaking of a, of a habitual way of life. Um, the verb is also an imperative mood indicating that Paul is not giving believers an option. It's a command. It's a command for us as believers to walk continually by the Spirit. Paul is basically saying, listen, while the self is always there desiring to go its way, the Holy Spirit is always there in you desiring to go His way. And we need to follow the Spirit. Stuart Briscoe um, once described the cuckoo bird. Uh, he said the cuckoo is a common bird in England. You know Stuart Briscoe <laughs> uh, grew up in England. He said the cuckoo bird is a common bird in England. The first sign of spring is that bird's call. The cuckoo never builds its own nest. When it feels an egg coming on, it finds another nest with eggs and no parent bird. The cuckoo lands hurledly legs its egg and then takes off again. That's all the cuckoo does in terms of parenting. <laughs> the thrush, whose nest has now been invaded, comes back, circles, and comes into the wind to land. Not being very good at arithmetic, it gets to work on hatching the eggs. Four little thrushes and one large cuckoo eventually hatch. The cuckoo is two to three times the size of the thrushes. Mrs. Thrush, having hatched the five little birds, goes off early morning to get the worms. Uh, she comes back, circles the nest to see four petite little thrush mouths and one cavernous cuckoo mouth. Who gets the worm? Well, it's the cuckoo. Guess what happens? The cuckoo gets bigger and bigger. The little thrushes get smaller and smaller. To find a baby cuckoo in a nest... Simply walk along a hedgerow until you find little dead thrushes. See, the cuckoo throws them out one at a time. Here's an adult thrush feeding a baby cuckoo that is three times as big as the thrush. 
So you say, well, what's the moral of the story? (laughs) The moral of the story is this. You and I have two natures in us, two natures in one nest. And the nature that you go on feeding will grow. And the nature you go on starving will diminish. If there's going to be anything resembling that which God has in mind for us, it's going to come not through a a once-in-a-long-while attempt at being spiritual, but a perpetual recognition of and daily obedience to the spirit of Jesus Christ. Second, not only do we need to be obedient, but we also need to be open. Do you notice what the disciples did while they waited? Look again with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Look what he says here. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit in prayer. They're waiting with great expectations. They waited, calling out for God to move and for God to send his promised power. They opened themselves up to the Holy Spirit. Though the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer, too often he has been shut up inside of our lives in some quiet little closet off in the corner. And because we haven't given him the liberty, um, he's unable to make us effective in our Christian life. Living. It's not enough, see, to have the Spirit in our lives. We've got to turn every room in the house of our lives over to Him. If we shut Him up in some little closet in our lives, He can't begin to fulfill in us what God wants for us. That is the very best. Dennis grew up in Seattle, and his dad would oftentimes go off for months at a time to Alaska on a different jobs. When his father would leave, he would give some assignments to his sons and expect them to carry them out. When Dennis was just a little tyke, his assignment was to go up to the hill in the back of the house and clean off the leaves off of the water tank. There, the spring filled that tank, and then it ran down the hill in a pipe to meet some of the needs of the house. His job was to go up there each day clean the leaves off the top of the water so they wouldn't accumulate and clog the pipe. Dennis did that for a while. But then after a little longer, he'd skip a day or two. And then after a while longer, he just let it go. Didn't go back up the hill. When his dad came home, his mother was telling him how everything was going, and she said to her husband, she said, but we do have a problem. There's not enough water coming for this or for that. The father simply turned to Dennis and said, Dennis, come along. Up the hill, they went to the tank. They got up there, and all the leaves that had accumulated and plugged up the pipe, and the water wasn't able to get through. It wasn't running. Though the dad cleaned it off, (laughs) he sat down with Dennis and explained it to him in his fatherly way what Dennis had failed to do. Dennis then says, the tragedy is at too many occasions in my life, I have failed to clean things out of the way that would keep the channel open for the Holy Spirit 
to be coming through. So I have failed at times because I have failed to appropriate the power of the Spirit. See, the tragedy in your life and mine is not that we necessarily have a bent towards selfishness or sin. The tragedy is that we have failed to use the resources that God has given us to live a different kind of life, to open ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how do we do that? I mean, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like the wind that blows where it wills. You see its effect, you, you, you feel its force, but you never see the wind itself. So how do we catch the wind of the Holy Spirit? As I once heard said, you can't package the wind in a box. You can't chase it down and collar it with a leash. Now, yes, you might be able to try to get a big garbage bag, you know, and open it up against the wind and then quickly tie it. Um, but the wind that's contained, you realize that, is no longer wind. It's just air. Now, air is capable of sustaining life, but it's powerless to drive the sailboat across the, the water or to lift the soaring hawk to, to greater heights or like we experienced in Tiananmen Square. It's powerless to fly a kite. You can't catch the wind. But if you can't catch the wind, at least you can allow the wind to catch you. <laughs> if your kite is open and ready to fly, and if the wings of your soul are spread to be lifted by the winds of current. You can't contain the Holy Spirit, but you can be filled with him. You can't tie him down, but you can be released by him. You can take the ropes off the tied-down sails of your life and catch the driving force of his presence. You can have the, the kite of your spirit ready to catch the, the currents of his power and be lifted into undreamed of heights of living and usefulness. Friends, listen, you can't catch a wind, but you can be caught by it. You can't take the Spirit and make him fit into your mold, but you can turn your life over to him and let him remold and reshape you. So let me ask you, has Pentecost happened in your life? Have you discovered the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you through faith in Jesus Christ? You can't catch the wind, but the wind can catch you. Has he? <laughs> Anybody ready to go fly a kite? Let's pray. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the power that your Holy Spirit gives to the believer. God, might we be obedient, might we be open to let your spirit, your wind, catch us, empower us to be your servants wherever we go. In your son's precious name, amen.